1: December morning in 2017, two Toronto real estate agents were giving a tour when one of them made a grisly discovery. Hanging from the railing around their basement pool were the bodies of 75-year-old Barry Sherman and his wife, 70-year-old Honey Sherman, the owners of the home. Their bodies were staged and slumped in a semi-seated position, legs stretched out in front, and their heads held up by belts, strapped around their necks and onto a railing a few feet off the ground. This was no typical murder scene, and it immediately became a high-profile case. Barry and Honey Sherman were one of the most prominent couples in Canada. With an estimated net worth of $3.2 billion at the time of his death, according to Forbes, Barry Sherman was the 12th wealthiest man in Canada. Investigators initially analyzed the crime scene and based on the evidence, theorized that this was likely a murder-suicide. But Barry and Honey's four adult children were adamant that their parents were targeted and they were right. Weeks after, police changed their tune and said the evidence now pointed to this being a double homicide. But who would do this to the Shermans? Turns out, this case has more suspects than a game of Clue. Barry Sherman was known for his aggressive business tactics and he had a long list of enemies. Prior to the murders, he even remarked that he was surprised that no one had killed him yet. It's now been over five years since the double homicide and this case remains unsolved. Who murdered Barry and Honey Sherman, one of Canada's wealthiest couples, and why? This is Avery After Dark, and I am your host, Avery Ross. For those of you who enjoy this podcast, please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Make sure you subscribe to my new Snapchat show, and join the Patreon, I'm linking both of those in the show notes. Today's case is a super high-profile and mysterious one that is still unsolved. A prominent couple in their 70s, targeted and murdered in their own mansion? How and why? There is a lot to this case, so let's start from the beginning. Bernard Sherman, Barry, was born in Toronto, Canada in 1942. Barry's father was a businessman himself and was one of the partners in a local zipper factory. Barry said his interest in business as a career began when his dad brought him to work at the zipper factory when he was just a young boy, and his dad gave him a box of zippers to count. He said his dad was surprised at how well he did. Barry's father died from a heart attack when Barry was only 10 years old, and after his death, Barry's mother had to now support the family and went back to work as an occupational therapist. In 1958, Barry signed up for the Canadian Army Student Militia, but didn't last very long as he didn't like authority. He then went on to study engineering science at the University of Toronto, and later said that he chose this because it was supposedly the university's hardest program. Barry got his start in the pharmaceutical business during his years at the university. In the summers, he would work for his uncle, Louis Lloyd Winter, at his uncle's company, Empire Laboratories. At the time, this was Canada's largest wholly owned pharmaceutical company. So this was a great start for Barry. He worked for the company as a driver, picking up urine samples. And when his uncle Louis would travel, Barry helped watch over the lab. He then went on to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology where he earned a PhD in astrophysics. Initially, he had dreams of working for NASA, but decided to take a different route to success instead, as Barry said he wanted to be his own boss and didn't want to work for someone else. So from this, we can gather that Barry is very independent and also very smart. After Barry graduated, the estate of his uncle, Louis Lloyd Winter, who had just died unexpectedly, let him run Empire Laboratories, He eventually sold it off for $2 million, but here is where we see some turmoil. Barry actually had four cousins, Lewis's younger children, and tragically, the children's mother and Lewis actually died within 17 days of each other. So the young children were left on their own, and they claim that since it was their father's business, they were supposed to receive 5% stake in Empire when it sold. The cousins later sued Barry unsuccessfully over the sale of the company. The judge ruled in Barry's favor. But this started a long feud within the family. A year later, Barry formed Apotex, his pharmaceutical company that he grew globally and made big profits. It was extremely successful, and eventually it was earning $1.5 billion a year in revenue. In a professional sense, Barry got a reputation with both competitors and government regulators for his extremely combative nature, often including litigation. In 1971, Barry married his wife, Honey, and they went on to have four children together, a son, Jonathan, and three daughters, Lauren, Alexandra, and Kaylin. Barry would go out regularly with Honey, and he was known to his friends and family as a bit of a workaholic. At social events the couple attended, Honey was the outgoing one, while Barry often kept to himself and discussed mainly his businesses. And as Apotex grew, the Shermans went on to live a very privileged life. They would spend weekends at ski clubs, and while Honey and the kids were out having fun skiing the trails, Barry would remain in the lodge, poring over work documents. Barry didn't play golf or any other leisurely pastimes, and would spend all of his family vacations reviewing business material. Working was his thing. And even as his fortune grew, Barry was not known to live lavishly. He would drive his cars until they barely ran anymore. One friend recalled that one of Barry's cars, a Ford Mustang, was so decrepit that it was leaking carbon monoxide into the passenger compartment. And for his 50th birthday, Honey gave Barry a bright red sports car with a bow on it in front of their entire group of friends and family at the party. Upon receiving the gift, Barry wasn't impressed and he asked Honey to take it back immediately. So she did. Speaking of Honey, we should discuss the relationship between Barry and Honey. According to family, Barry Sherman was very generous with his kids and gave them millions of dollars in gifts. He was very easy on the children and would supposedly just hand them money. Honey, on the other hand, was reportedly kept on a tight financial leash. She had access to cash for trips and shopping, but controlled none of the money herself. It was said that Barry gave her money for her needs, not her desires. And since fancy things weren't important to Barry, he felt they shouldn't be important to Honey either. And Honey was different with the children as opposed to Barry. She wanted them to have jobs and pay their own bills. And as it usually goes, there was a bit of dysfunction with money. From sources close to the family, it was not unusual for some of the children to receive gifts of hundreds of millions, while the other children would receive gifts in the lower millions. Friends of Honey also said that Honey and her son, Jonathan, did not get along. In the months leading up to the murders, Honey made a curious comment to some friends saying that her husband was contemplating giving her a big financial gift. In another strange note, Honey Sherman didn't have a will. This is a bit odd for a woman of her age being 70 and for the family's net worth, just a curious detail investigators found unusual as most people are advised to have a will. So as they say, more money, more problems. You know, I have never had anyone hand me hundreds of millions of dollars, but I will say I had a friend who came from an extremely wealthy family, and there was a similar dynamic to this. Some of the children, my friend's siblings, were gifted more money than others, and this led to major issues, dysfunction, and jealousy within the family. So not a good scene and not usually good for overall morale.
0: Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. O, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.
1: Honey Sherman became known for her philanthropic work and served on the boards of several prominent charities. And both Barry and Honey were applauded for their donations of millions of dollars to charities throughout the years. It's important that we cover all angles of this case to give you the full story. Barry Sherman seemed to have a bit of a mixed reputation. He and his wife were described by some as kind, good people. On the other hand, through many of the interviews I read, many who knew Barry didn't have many good things to say about him. Through his years in business, Barry Sherman had made numerous enemies both personally and in business. A University of Ottawa professor named Amir Adaran said that Barry Sherman was a, quote, deplorable human being, end quote, in reference to his business practices and said that Barry knowingly gouged Canadians left and right with outrageously high drug prices. A doctor and former business associate of Barry named Morton Schulman described Barry as, quote, "...the only person I have ever met with no redeeming features whatsoever." End quote. Additionally, a Bloomberg reporter who covered Barry's death said that some of the rival drug companies' executives used unprintable language to describe Barry and the way he conducted business. Barry Sherman was very vocal about his views. He said he did not believe in God, free will, altruism, or morality. And according to those closest to him, Barry knew that he had made enemies, people that would like to harm him and was fully aware of his reputation. He even made a remark that he was quite surprised that no one had killed him yet. It was also reported that Barry had a strong distrust in people overall. Over the years, in total, Barry had sued dozens of people, including a lawsuit filed the last day he was ever seen alive against someone he claimed had scammed him out of a $150,000 investment. Another example, in 1996, after the Sherman's North York house was completed following five years of construction, Barry and Honey were reportedly completely dissatisfied with the work done on it. In particular, they claimed that the garage, a structure that they had built with a tennis court on top and a basement lap pool and hot tub, was faulty. They said it was a disaster, so Barry and Honey filed 12 separate lawsuits against all the contractors. And in the end, they recovered the entire estimated $2.3 million, which was the cost of building the house through favorable judgments. So it was very well known that if you worked with Barry Sherman, he was not afraid to sue you if he was displeased with the end result. So let's talk about what was going on before the murders. Barry and Honey were living in a 12,000 square foot house located at 50 Old Colony Road in North York, Ontario, Canada. In 2017, Barry and Honey decided that they wanted to move and put their house on the market. Their plan was to build a bigger 16,000 square foot house in Forest Hill that would be closer to downtown Toronto. The plans for this home, or mansion, was going to be a central swimming pool with a 41-foot retractable skylight and living quarters for their staff. So prior to the murders, the Shermans listed their home at Old Colony Road for sale for a whopping $7 million. So they were in the midst of showing it. They had realtors, cleaners, prospective buyers all coming in and out of the house. On December 12, 2017, Honey Sherman failed to show up to a board meeting for a foundation she belonged to called the Baycrest Center Foundation. This was very out of the ordinary for her as she would usually notify them beforehand if she couldn't make it. Those at the foundation later reached out to Honey through email asking what happened and Honey replied back that she was, quote, dealing with some stuff, end quote. On December 13th, late in the afternoon, Barry and Honey met at Apotex to work on the design for their new house. Honey was getting ready to leave for holiday vacation in Miami in just a few days, and Barry was set to join her a few days later. After their meeting finished, Honey left first to head back to their house, and just a short time later, Barry left Apotex to head home too. This was the last time the couple were ever seen alive. The first indication that something may be wrong came that night, as it was pretty standard for Barry to make business calls at night as he had insomnia and couldn't sleep. So typically, he would usually spend the later evenings catching up on phone calls. But on the night of the 13th, Barry made no phone calls. The next day, December 14th, Barry was supposed to be at Apotex, but he never showed up. This was also highly unusual as Barry never missed work. On December 15th, it was set up beforehand that Barry and Honey would not be at home as their realtors had set up a showing. So that morning, at 8.30am, a a cleaning crew used a lockbox to gain entry to the Sherman's home and entered. At 10am, two real estate agents arrived at the Sherman's home and proceeded to give a tour to a couple who was interested in possibly buying the Sherman's home. The agents gave a tour of both the first and the second floor of the home. After this, one of the realtors guided the group down to the basement as their final part of the house tour. There was both a pool and a hot tub in the basement, so the couple was very eager to check it out. As the group made their way down the stairs, one of the real estate agents spotted the bodies of Barry and Honey Sherman next to the pool. This agent didn't immediately realize that the couple was deceased, but recognized there was something very wrong. So she quickly turned to the couple and said, "'Oh, I'm sorry, they're down here doing yoga. "'We'll come back,' and guided both the couple and the other real estate agent back upstairs. This agent later told investigators that it looked like they were doing some weird yoga thing. Once back upstairs, this agent then found a member of the cleaning crew and asked them to go check on the couple in the basement. When this member returned back upstairs a few moments later, he said, call the police. But the agent didn't immediately call 911. She waited until 11.43 a.m., almost 90 minutes after discovering the bodies. It's unclear why she waited an astounding hour and a half to alert the authorities, but she did. Upon arriving at the scene, police found the bodies of 75-year-old Barry Sherman and 70-year-old Honey Sherman. They concluded that they had been dead for at least a day. Their bodies were slumped in the semi-seated position, legs stretched in front, and their heads were held up by belts strapped to the stainless steel railing. Investigators saw the leather belts around their necks and concluded that both deaths were caused by ligature neck compression, also known as strangulation. Strangely, Both Barry and Honey were wearing coats that were pulled down over their shoulders, which restricted movement of their arms. Barry was in the seated position with his right leg crossed over his left leg and his eyeglasses were positioned properly on his face. And other than the injuries to his neck, there were no other injuries to his body. Honey Sherman was found on her side and she did have an injury, a bruise to her face. This detail is especially chilling. The positions that Barry and Honey were found in closely matched those of two 1970s era junk sculptures of human figures that the Shermans had posed on speakers in the basement. Police noted that Barry's right leg was crossed over his left, just like the sculpture. In regards to the house, a window was found to have been left open to allow a recently painted room to air out And the basement door was unlocked, as apparently the Shermans frequently left it. This was no typical crime scene. What happened here? We'll be right back. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com spoken. That's linkedin.com spoken. Terms and conditions apply. You're back with Avery After Dark. From the beginning, the crime scene confounded investigators. There was no sign of forced entry, but it was possible someone had a key or had access to the lockbox that held the keys, or was known to the couple. And surprisingly, initially, the deaths were not being treated as homicides. Police initially saw the injury to Honey's cheek and the bizarre stage scene, and theorized that Barry had possibly murdered his wife before taking his own life. Honey and Barry's four adult children strongly disagreed with this theory and believed that their parents were murdered and everyone in Toronto was talking about this case. Their funeral was attended by thousands of people, including Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And at the service, an emotional Jonathan Sherman took the stage accompanied by his three sisters and slammed speculation that their parents died by suicide. The Sherman children hired their own team of forensic pathologists and private investigators leading to speculation that they were sparring with the police. But the Sherman children were not alone. Many pointed to the unlikeliness that this was a murder-suicide. Dr. Mary Case, the chief medical examiner for St. Louis County said, if this is a murder-suicide by hanging, it will be the first one recorded in history, quote. And then, authorities had a change of heart. Six weeks after the murders, Toronto police shifted in their original theory of this being a murder-suicide and now believe that this was a double homicide, and they said they believe it was targeted. They came to this conclusion as they had found damage to both Barry and Honey's hands consistent with zip ties. They believe whoever killed them used zip ties to subdue them and then removed them after they were dead. Police also said that the evidence points to Honey being killed on the first floor and her body being moved to the basement. Barry was 75 and not in good physical condition, so they don't believe that he alone would have been able to likely move Honey, who weighed 170 pounds at the time, from the first floor to the basement. Honey's iPhone was discovered in a bathroom on the first floor at the front of the house that family and friends said she never used. It's theorized that upon arriving home around 8 p.m., Honey entered and ran into that restroom to escape her attacker. The morning the bodies were discovered, one of the realtors reported finding some of Barry's business papers and his gloves dropped outside the door near the staircase into the house. Not knowing the significance at the time, the realtor picked both up and placed them in the hallway. It's likely that Barry was grabbed at the spot the gloves and paper were found as he entered the home that evening. Both Barry and Honey were taken to the pool area and after the killer or killers could have escaped through a number of doors or the open window. Police said the killer may have known the interior layout of the Sherman's home and also displayed the bodies in the same manner of those statues in their home to create confusion or make it seem that this was a murder suicide as police originally thought the killer or killers taking the time to remove the zip ties from their hands after they were dead could also have been to make it appear that this was a murder-suicide. So Toronto police were backpedaling a bit and said that investigators actually never said that this was in fact a murder-suicide, but rather saying that this was just a misunderstanding. It's unknown why it took police so long to determine that it was a double murder. And many noted that because of their initial theory, DNA and fingerprints at the murder scene were not collected in a timely fashion. But why did police get this tunnel vision that this was a murder-suicide? It should be noted that the Shermans were killed on December 13th and found on December 15th. That week was when the Toronto police were closing in on the Bruce MacArthur serial murder investigation. So, were they preoccupied with that? Many believe so. Authorities said that they were seeking to reassure the public that there was no sign that this was a break in enter or robbery with violence, meaning this double murder was not random, it was planned. Going back to those sculptures and how the bodies were posed in similar fashion, the Sherman children often called those sculptures creepy, but Honey Sherman felt differently, and actually made sure that she could keep the sculptures and bring them into their new home. Honey reportedly felt that the sculptures had become a permanent part of the family's decor. So did the killer know this? Either way, it's very creepy. But who would have the motive to kill Barry and Honey Sherman? Unfortunately for detectives, it was a long, long list of possible suspects. As I made a point to mention before, Barry Sherman had made countless enemies throughout his years in business. So police found the task of pinning down one specific suspect extremely challenging because there were numerous people with a motive to kill Barry. Another very strange thing to note, I mentioned that Barry had acknowledged that he had enemies and that, in fact, he was shocked that no one had murdered him yet. We know that he had the money and the means, and could have installed security systems, cameras, he could have had the home under constant surveillance, but he didn't. He obviously knew that he could be targeted, but Barry didn't even bother locking his doors. Police found that right before the murders, Barry had been awarded $300,000 in legal fees from his cousin Carrie Winter. We discussed that there had been long standing feuds within the family. And Carrie had admitted that he had fantasized about killing Barry, specifically by decapitating him and, quote, rolling his head down the parking lot of Apotex, end quote. Wow, that is graphic. After telling Bloomberg that he'd been informed that he was a prime suspect and consulting with his lawyer, Carrie Winter allowed that he had not only the motive to kill his cousin, but the opportunity, since he was working at the time as a construction supervisor and could set his own hours. But Carey has always denied committing the murders and maintains that he has an alibi. He says the night of the murders, he was watching Peaky Blinders on Netflix and then attending a Cocaine Anonymous meeting that evening. Police also learned that weeks before the homicides, Barry had asked his son Jonathan to repay a loan for tens of millions of dollars that Jonathan had borrowed for his storage business. Jonathan said that this was to get his father through a difficult financial situation. Barry himself reportedly owed billions to various companies, but Barry had claimed that he would never, ever pay. But Jonathan said that he and his father did have a very close relationship both personally and professionally. Overall, there were many different angles and motives to consider. Months and then years passed without any new leads or breakthroughs in the case, and the Sherman children were growing more impatient with the lack of movement. Everyone was wondering, would this case ever be solved? We'll be right back You're back with Avery After Dark. November 2020, police alerted that they had identified a person of interest in the murders. But just two days later, they said, well, actually, it could be multiple people. And then, nothing. No word from authorities. One day in December 2021, investigators made a plea with the public, along with a new video that could crack the case wide open. The public all believed... All right, police must finally have something huge. On the fourth anniversary of the Dumble homicide, police shared a video of an unidentified person on a security video walking down the snowy covered sidewalks in the Sherman's neighborhood the night and the time of the murders. This video shows the person in full winter getup covered head to toe, making their way down the sidewalk towards the Sherman's house until finally they're out of view. Investigators were asking the public for their help in identifying this person. This individual is estimated to be between 5'6 and 5'9. Police also added they weren't sure if this was male or female and also couldn't determine their age, weight, or skin color. Investigators said that the gait of the individual was unusual because they appear to kick their right heel up while walking. Investigators said, quote, Through our investigation, we have been unable to determine what this individual's purpose was in the neighborhood. The timing of this individual's appearance is in line with when we believe the murders took place. Based on this evidence, we're classifying this individual as a suspect." So, this newfound video was as underwhelming as it sounds. It wasn't the huge breakthrough evidence many were hoping for four years after the murders. And it's underwhelming because not much can be gathered from the video itself. And I also wonder why it took four years to release the footage. Many believe that the unusual gait that the police referred to could also just be that this person was walking in snow. And as we all know, most people walk differently in snow. So the only thing you can take from the 20 second footage is that this individual spent a suspicious amount of time in the area of Barry and Honey's home the night of the murders, and that this individual can walk. Police urged the person in the video to come forward, but nobody did, and nothing really came of it. Court documents released in January, 2022, included statements by Honey Sherman's sister, Mary Schechtman, who suggested the person responsible for the murders was, quote, making a statement. Mary, who was extremely close to her sister, Honey, said that she believed the motive for the killings may have been religion. The court documents read, quote, The Shermans were strong supporters of Israel, and Honey was very vocal about being Jewish, end quote. So whether this was the case or not, it definitely added another dynamic, possible motive and angle to the investigation. There was also talk of two odd men who toured the Sherman's home just days before the murders. These men took a usual tour of the home and obviously were able to see and note the layout. Not much has come from this possible lead either, but it's introduced another question, which is, was there more than one killer? Since the double homicide, there has been a big rift with the Sherman's adult children. It was reported by the Toronto Star that it was not a happy home life at the Sherman household. And those tensions have seemed to have lasted well after the murders. Recently, one of the Sherman's three daughters, Alexandra, released a statement reaffirming the $10 million reward in her parents' unsolved murder case and said that she is hoping for closure. And just a few days later, Jonathan Sherman, Alexandra's brother, came out with a statement and said that he was adding $25 million to the reward. And the reward for information leading to an arrest in the case of Barry and Honey Sherman is now at $35 million. But this showed the apparent rift in the family. Many would have liked to have seen the four Sherman children working together, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Based on the evidence, it appears the Shermans were victims of a targeted hit. The exact way they were killed, strangled instead of shot, seems very personal. The Sherman's wealth would suggest someone was in it for the money, but the people who stood to gain financially the most from their deaths, their four children, don't appear to be involved in the murders in any way. In fact, they were the ones advocating for it to be investigated as a double murder. Barry, along with his pharmaceutical company, also had a number of offbeat business dealings outside of pharma. But there have been no concrete leads that suggest to a deal gone awry. The murder suggests the killer had intimate knowledge of the Shermans and their routines. So, did Barry and Honey Sherman know their killer? Many believe it's a very real possibility, and I personally agree. I can see the killer indeed being someone that Barry and Honey knew. And many who have investigated the murders don't believe the killer or killers were professionals, as one of the belts used to kill the Shermans was taken from an upstairs bedroom. This is even more curious and opens up more questions. So the killer entered the house with no murder weapon? Most organized criminals don't look for their murder weapons at the scene of the crime. And as we noted, strangulation is a very close and intimate thing different than hiring a hitman. So the evidence points to this being personal, meaning the Shermans most likely looked straight at their killer or killers and recognized them. But what about the money? In regards to the finances, the Sherman children have received payouts since the murders in the hundreds of millions, although a majority of Barry's holdings, $3.5 billion, were in Apotex, This is and was Barry's major asset. Apotex was sold to a New York company in recent years. So that deal is making its way through the courts, but after it's settled, the $3.5 billion will be split up four ways, divided up among the Sherman's four adult children, and paid out. The Sherman children say the lack of answers in this case adds to their grief. The couple's four adult children have previously criticized Toronto police for their handling of the investigation and have hired a private investigator to look into their parents' murders separately. Police have conducted at least 250 witness interviews, received well over 1,200 tips from the public, and obtained 41 warrants. It's been over five years since the murders of Barry and Honey Sherman, and there have been no new major developments and the case appears to be at a complete standstill. It's surprising to me that with a $35 million reward hanging in the midst, no one has come forward. Either the killer or killers didn't tell anyone about what they did, or they confessed to a very loyal confidant. But as we've heard, the way in which Barry Sherman chose to conduct himself in life and in business is very risky and can be dangerous. Suing people left and right, creating enemies, constantly feuding with family members, this can result with a target on one's back. And Barry Sherman seemed to be very well aware of this. And it's very curious as to why he didn't seek out any sort of security for his home, as this could have led investigators straight to the murderer. But as of today, this double murder mystery remains one of the world's most talked about and grisly unsolved cases to date there is still so many missing parts to this story. Toronto police say that they remain cautiously optimistic in solving the case, but others aren't so sure. Will it ever be solved? Time will tell. Until next episode, this is Avery After Dark.